0: Book Three, Chapters One and Two of Joseph Andrews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Dennis Sayers. Joseph Andrews, by Henry Fielding. Book Three, Chapter One. Matter Prefatory in Praise of Biography notwithstanding the preference which may be vulgarly given to the authority of those romance writers who entitle their books the history of england the history of france of spain etc it is most certain that truth is to be found only in the works of those who celebrate the lives of great men and are commonly called biographers as the others should indeed be termed topographers or choreographers, words which might well mark the distinction between them, it being the business of the latter chiefly to describe countries and cities, which, with the assistance of maps, they do pretty justly, and may be depended upon, but as to the actions and characters of men, their writings are not quite so authentic of which there needs no other proof than those eternal contradictions occurring between two topographers who undertake the history of the same country, for instance, between my lord Clarendon and Mr. Whitelock, between Mr. Chard and Rapin, and many others, where, facts being set forth in a different light, every reader believes as he pleases, and, indeed, the more judicious and suspicious, very justly esteem the whole as no other than a romance, in which the writer hath indulged a happy and fertile invention. But though these widely differ in the narrative of facts, some ascribing victory to the one, and others to the other party, some representing the same man as a rogue, while others give him a great and honest character. Yet all agree in the scene where the fact is supposed to have happened, and where the person, who is both a rogue and an honest man, lived. Now, with us biographers the case is different. The facts we deliver may be relied on, though we often mistake the age and country wherein they happened, for though it may be worth the examination of critics, whether the shepherd Chrysostom, who, as Cervantes informs us, died for love of the fair Marcella, who hated him, was ever in Spain, will any one doubt but that such a silly fellow hath really existed? Is there in the world such a sceptic as to disbelieve the madness of Cardenio, the perfidy of Ferdinand, the impertinent curiosity of Anselmo, the weakness of Camilla, the irresolute friendship of Lothario, though perhaps as to the time and place where those several persons lived, that good historian may be deplorably deficient. But the most known instance of this kind is in the true history of Gil Blas, where the inimitable biographer hath made a notorious blunder in the country of Dr. Sangrado, who used his patients as a vintner doth his wine-vessels by letting out their blood, and filling them up with water. Doth not every one, who is the least versed in physical history, know that Spain was not the country in which this doctor lived. The same writer hath likewise erred in the country of his archbishop, as well as that of those great personages whose understandings were too sublime to taste anything but tragedy, and in many others. The same mistakes may likewise be observed in Scaron the Arabian Nights, the History of Marianne, and Le Paysan Parvenu, and perhaps some few other writers of this class, whom I have not read, or do not at present recollect, for I would by no means be thought to comprehend those persons of surprising genius, the authors of immense romances, or the modern novel, and atalantus writers, who— without any assistance from nature or history record persons who never were or will be and facts which never did nor possibly can happen whose heroes are of their own creation and their brains the chaos whence all their materials are selected not that such writers deserve no honour so far otherwise that perhaps they merit the highest for what can be nobler than to be as an example of the wonderful extent of human genius one may apply to them what balzac says of aristotle that they are a second nature for they have no communication with the first by which authors of an inferior class who cannot stand alone are obliged to support themselves as with crutches, but these of whom I am now speaking seemed to be possessed of those stilts which the excellent Voltaire tells us in his letters quote, carry the genius far off, but with an regular pace. Close Indeed, far out of the sight of the reader, beyond the realm of chaos and old night, But to return to the former class, who are contented to copy nature, instead of forming originals from the confused heap of matter in their own brains, is not such a book as that which records the achievements of the renowned Don Quixote, more worthy the name of a history than even Mariana's, for Whereas the latter is confined to a particular period of time, and to a particular nation, the former is the history of the world in general, at least that part which is polished by laws, arts, and sciences, and of that, from the time it was first polished, to this day. Nay, and forwards, as long as it shall, so remain. I shall now proceed to apply these observations to the work before us. For, indeed, I have set them down principally to obviate some constructions which the good nature of mankind, who are always forward to see their friends' virtues recorded, may put to particular parts. I question not, but several of my readers will know the lawyer in the stage-coach THE MOMENT THEY HEAR HIS VOICE. IT IS, LIKEWISE, ODDS, BUT THE WIT AND THE PROVED MEET WITH SOME OF THEIR ACQUAINTANCE, AS WELL AS ALL THE REST OF MY CHARACTERS. TO PREVENT, THEREFORE, ANY SUCH MALICIOUS APPLICATIONS, I DECLARE HERE, ONCE FOR ALL, I DESCRIBE NOT MEN, NOT MANNERS, NOT AN INDIVIDUAL, BUT A SPECIES, Perhaps it will be answered. Are not the characters then taken from life, to which I answer in the affirmative? Nay, I believe I might aver that I have writ little more than I have seen. The lawyer is not only alive, but hath been so these four thousand years, and I hope g will indulge his life as many yet to come. HE HATH NOT INDEED CONFINED HIMSELF TO ONE PROFESSION, ONE RELIGION, OR ONE COUNTRY. BUT WHEN THE FIRST MEAN, SELFISH CREATURE APPEARED ON THE HUMAN STAGE, WHO MADE SELF THE CENTER OF THE WHOLE CREATION, WOULD GIVE HIMSELF NO PAIN, INCUR NO DANGER, ADVANCE NO MONEY, TO ASSIST OR PRESERVE HIS FELLOW CREATURES, THEN WAS OUR LAWYER BORN, and whilst such a person, as I have described, exists on earth, so long shall he remain upon it. It is, therefore, doing him little honour to imagine he endeavours to mimic some little obscure fellow, because he happens to resemble him in one particular feature, or perhaps in his profession, whereas his appearance in the world is calculated for much more general and noble purposes, not to expose one pitiful wretch to the small and contemptible circle of his acquaintance, but to hold the glass to thousands in their closets, that they may contemplate their deformity, and endeavour to reduce it, and thus by suffering private mortification may avoid public shame. This places the boundary between, and distinguishes the satirist from the libeller, for the former privately corrects the fault for the benefit of the person, like a parent. The latter publicly exposes the person himself as an example to others, like an executioner. There are, besides little circumstances, to be considered, as the drapery of a picture which though fashion varies at different times the resemblance of the countenance is not by those means diminished thus i believe we may venture to say mrs towhouse is coeval with our lawyer and though perhaps during the changes which so long an existence must have passed through she may, in her turn, have stood behind the bar at an inn, I will not scruple to affirm she hath likewise, in the revolution of ages, sat on a throne. In short, where extreme turbulency of temper, avarice, and an insensibility of human misery, with a degree of hypocrisy, have united in a female composition, Mrs. Towouse was that woman, and, where a good inclination, eclipsed by a poverty of spirit and understanding, hath glimmered forth in a man, that man hath been no other than her sneaking husband. I shall detain my reader no longer than to give him one caution more of an opposite kind. For, as in most of our particular characters, we mean not to lash individuals, but all of the like sort. So, in our general descriptions, we mean not universals, but would be understood with many exceptions. For instance, in our description of high people, we cannot be intended to include, such as, whilst they are an honor to their high rank, by a well-guided condescension, make their superiority as easy as possible to those whom fortune chiefly hath placed below them. Of this number I could name a peer no less elevated by nature than by fortune, who, whilst he wears the noblest ensigns of honour on his person, bears the truest stamp of dignity on his mind, adorned with greatness, enriched with knowledge, and embellished with genius. I have seen this man relieve with generosity, while he hath conversed with freedom, and be to the same person a patron and a companion. I could name a commoner, raised higher above the multitude by superior talents, than is in the power of his prince to exalt him, whose behavior to those he hath obliged is more amiable than the obligation itself, and who is so great a master of affability, that, if he could divest himself of an inherent greatness in his manner, would often make the lowest of his acquaintance forget who was the master of that palace, in which they are so courteously entertained. These are pictures which must be, I believe, known." i declare they are taken from the life and not intended to exceed it by those high people therefore whom i have described i mean a set of wretches who while they are a disgrace to their ancestors whose honours and fortunes they inherit or perhaps a greater to their mother for such degeneracy is scarce credible have the insolence to treat those with disregard who are at least equal to the founders of their own splendour. It is, I fancy, impossible to conceive a spectacle more worthy of our indignation than that of a fellow who is not only a blot in the escutcheon of a great family, but a scandal to the human species— maintaining a supercilious behaviour to men who are an honour to their nature and a disgrace to their fortune. And now, reader, taking these hints along with you, you may, if you please, proceed to the sequel of this our true history. CHAPTER Two: A night scene, wherein several wonderful adventures befell Adam's and his fellow-travellers it was so late when our travellers left the inn or alehouse, for it might be called either that they had not travelled many miles before night overtook them or met them which you please the reader must excuse me if i am not particular as to the way they took for as we are now drawing near the seat of the boobies and, as that is a ticklish name, which malicious persons may apply, according to their evil inclinations, to several worthy country squires, a race of men whom we look upon as entirely inoffensive, and for whom we have an adequate regard. We shall lend no assistance to any such malicious purposes. Darkness had now overspread the hemisphere, when fanny whispered joseph that she begged to rest herself a little for that she was so tired she could walk no farther joseph immediately prevailed with parson adams who was as brisk as a bee to stop he had no sooner seated himself than he lamented the loss of his dear aeschylus but was a little comforted when reminded that If he had it in his possession, he could not see to read. The sky was so clouded, that not a star appeared. It was, indeed, according to Milton, darkness visible. This was a circumstance, however, very favourable to Joseph, for Fanny, not suspicious of being overseen by Adams, gave a loose to her passion, which she had never done before, and reclining her head on his bosom, threw her arm carelessly round him, and suffered him to lay his cheek close to hers. All this infused such happiness into Joseph, that he would not have changed his turf for the finest down in the finest palace in the universe. Adams sat at some distance from the lovers, and, being unwilling to disturb them, applied himself to meditation, in which he had not spent much time before he discovered a light at some distance that seemed approaching towards them. He immediately hailed it, but to his sorrow and surprise, it stopped for a moment, and then disappeared. He then called to Joseph, asking him if he had not seen the light. Joseph answered, He had. And did you not mark how it vanished? returned he. Though I am not afraid of ghosts, I do not absolutely disbelieve them. He then entered into a meditation on those unsubstantial beings, which was soon interrupted by several voices, which he thought almost at his elbow, though in fact they were not so extremely near. However, he could distinctly hear them agree on the murder of any one they met, and, a little after, heard one of them say, He had killed a dozen since that day fortnight. Adams now fell on his knees, and committed himself to the care of Providence. And poor Fanny, who likewise heard those terrible words, embraced Joseph so closely, that had not he... Whose ears were also open, been apprehensive on her account, he would have thought no danger which threatened only himself too dear a price for such embraces. Joseph now drew forth his penknife, and Adams, having finished his ejaculations, grasped his crab stick, his only weapon, and coming up to Joseph, would have had him quit Fanny and place her in the rear, but his advice was fruitless. She clung closer to him, not at all regarding the presence of Adams, and, in a soothing voice, declared she would die in his arms. Joseph, clasping her with inexpressible eagerness, whispered her that he preferred death in hers to life out of them. Adams, brandishing his crab stick, said, "He despised death as much as any man," and then repeated aloud, "Est hic est animus lucis contemptor et Ilum qui vita bene credat emi quo tendis honorum." Upon this, the voices ceased for a moment, and then one of them called out, "D blank in you, who is there?" to which Adams was prudent enough to make no reply, and of a sudden he observed half a dozen lights, which seemed to rise all at once from the ground, and advance briskly towards him. This he immediately concluded to be an apparition, and now, beginning to conceive that the voices were of the same kind, he called out, In the name of the l blank d What wouldst thou have? He had no sooner spoke than he heard one of the voices cry out, D-blank in them! Here they come! And soon after heard several hearty blows, as if a number of men had been engaged at quarter-staff. He was just advancing towards the place of combat, when Joseph, catching him by the skirts, begged him that they might take the opportunity of the dark to convey away Fanny from the danger which threatened her. He presently complied, and Joseph, lifting up Fanny, they all three made the best of their way, and without looking behind them, or being overtaken, they had travelled full two miles, poor Fanny not once complaining of being tired, when they saw afar off, several lights scattered at a small distance from each other, and at the same time found themselves on the descent of a very steep hill. Adam's foot slipping, he instantly disappeared, which greatly frightened both Joseph and Fanny. Indeed, if the light had permitted them to see it, they would scarce have refrained, laughing to see the parson rolling down the hill, which he did from top to bottom, without receiving any harm. He then hollowed as loud as he could, TO INFORM THEM OF HIS SAFETY, AND RELIEVE THEM FROM THE FEARS WHICH THEY HAD CONCEIVED FOR HIM. JOSEPH AND FANNY HALTED SOME TIME, CONSIDERING WHAT TO DO. AT LAST THEY ADVANCED A FEW PACES, WHERE THE DECLIVITY SEEMED LEAST STEEP, AND THEN JOSEPH, TAKING HIS FANNY IN HIS ARMS, WALKED FIRMLY DOWN THE HILL, WITHOUT MAKING A FALSE STEP, AND AT LENGTH LANDED HER AT THE BOTTOM, where Adams soon came to them. Learn hence, my fair countrywomen, to consider your own weakness, and the many occasions on which the strength of a man may be useful to you, and, duly weighing this, take care that you match not yourselves with the spindle-shanked beaux and petit maitres of the age, who... Instead of being able, like Joseph Andrews, to carry you in lusty arms through the rugged ways and downhill steeps of life, will rather want to support their feeble limbs with your strength and assistance. Our travellers now moved forwards where the nearest light presented itself, and having crossed a common field, they came to a meadow, where they seemed to be at a very little distance from the light, when, to their grief, they arrived at the banks of a river. Adams here made a full stop, and declared he could swim, but doubted how it was possible to get Fanny over, to which Joseph answered, if they walked along its banks, they might be certain of soon finding a bridge, especially as by the number of lights they might be assured a parish was near. Odd so, That's true indeed, said Adams. I did not think of that. Accordingly, Joseph's advice being taken, they passed over two meadows, and came to a little orchard, which led them to a house. Fanny begged of Joseph to knock at the door, assuring him she was so weary that she could hardly stand on her feet. Adams, who was foremost, performed the ceremony, and the door being immediately opened a plain kind of man appeared at it adams acquainted him that they had a young woman with them who was so tired with her journey that he should be much obliged to him if he would suffer her to come in and rest herself the man who saw fanny by the light of the candle which he held in his hand perceiving her innocent and modest look and having no apprehensions from the civil behaviour of Adams, presently answered that the young woman was very welcome to rest herself in his house, and so were her company. He then ushered them into a very decent room, where his wife was sitting at a table. She immediately rose up, and assisted them in setting forth chairs, and desired them to sit down, which they had no sooner done then the man of the house asked them if they would have anything to refresh themselves with. Adams thanked him, and answered he should be obliged to him for a cup of his ale, which was likewise chosen by Joseph and Fanny. Whilst he was gone to fill a very large jug with this liquor, his wife told Fanny she seemed greatly fatigued, and desired her to take something stronger than ale but she refused with many thanks saying it was true she was very much tired but a little rest she hoped would restore her as soon as the company were all seated mr adams who had filled himself with ale and by permission had lighted his pipe turned to the master of the house asking him if evil spirits did not use to walk in that neighbourhood to which receiving no answer he began to inform him of the adventure which they met with on the downs, nor had he proceeded far in the story when somebody knocked very hard at the door. The company expressed some amazement, and Fanny and the good woman turned pale. Her husband went forth, and whilst he was absent, which was some time, they all remained silent, looking at one another and heard several voices discoursing pretty loudly. Adams was fully persuaded that spirits were abroad, and began to meditate some exorcisms, Joseph a little inclined to the same opinion. Fanny was more afraid of men, and the good woman herself began to suspect her guests, and imagined those without were rogues belonging to their gang. At length the master of the house returned, and, laughing, told Adams he had discovered his apparition, that the murderers were sheep-stealers, and the twelve persons murdered were no other than twelve sheep, adding, that the shepherds had got the better of them, had secured two, and were proceeding with them to a justice of peace. This account greatly relieved the fears of the whole company but Adams muttered to himself, He was convinced of the truth of apparitions for all that. They now sat cheerfully round the fire, till the master of the house, having surveyed his guests, and conceiving that the cassock, which, having fallen down, appeared under Adams' greatcoat, and the shabby livery on Joseph Andrews, did not well suit with the familiarity between them, began to entertain some suspicions, not much to their advantage. Addressing himself, therefore, to Adams, he said, He perceived he was a clergyman by his dress, and supposed that honest man was his footman. Sir, answered Adams, I am a clergyman at your service, but as to that young man, whom you have rightly termed honest, he is at present in nobody's service, He never lived in any other family than that of Lady Booby, from whence he was discharged, I assure you, for no crime. Joseph said, He did not wonder the gentleman was surprised to see one of Mr. Adams' character condescend to so much goodness with a poor man. Child, said Adams, I should be ashamed of my cloth if I thought a poor man, who is honest, "'below my notice, or my familiarity. "'I know not how those who think otherwise "'can profess themselves followers and servants "'of him who made no distinction, "'unless peradventure by preferring the poor to the rich. "'Sir,' said he, addressing himself to the gentleman, "'these two poor children are my parishioners, "'and I look on them and love them as my children.' There is something singular enough in their history, but I have not now time to recount it. The master of the house, notwithstanding the simplicity which discovered itself in Adams, knew too much of the world to give a hasty belief to professions. He was not yet quite certain that Adams had any more of the clergyman in him than his cassock. To try him therefore further... HE ASKED HIM IF MR. POPE HAD LATELY PUBLISHED ANYTHING NEW. ADAMS ANSWERED HE HAD HEARD GREAT COMMENDATIONS OF THAT POET, BUT THAT HE HAD NEVER READ NOR KNEW ANY OF HIS WORKS. HO-HO, SAYS THE GENTLEMAN TO HIMSELF, HAVE I CAUGHT YOU. WHAT, SAID HE, HAVE YOU NEVER SEEN HIS HOMER? ADAMS ANSWERED HE HAD NEVER READ ANY translation of the classics. Why, truly, replied the gentleman, there is a dignity in the Greek language which I think no modern tongue can reach. Do you understand Greek, sir? said Adams hastily. A little, sir, answered the gentleman. Do you know, sir, cried Adams, where I can buy an Aeschylus, an unlucky misfortune lately happened to mine. Aeschylus was beyond the gentleman, though he knew him very well by name. He therefore, returning back to Homer, asked Adams, What part of the Iliad he thought most excellent? Adams returned, His question would be properer. What kind of beauty was the chief in poetry? For that Homer was equally excellent in them all. And indeed, continued he, what Cicero says of a complete orator may well be applied to a great poet. He ought to comprehend all perfections. Homer did this in the most excellent degree. It is not without reason, therefore, that the philosopher, in the twenty-second chapter of his Poetics, mentions him by no other appellation than that of the poet. He was the father of the drama as well as the epic, not of tragedy only, but of comedy also, for his Margites, which is deplorably lost, bore, says Aristotle, the same analogy to comedy as his Odyssey and Iliad to tragedy. To him, therefore, we owe Aristophanes, as well as Euripides, Sophocles, and my poor Aeschylus. But, if you please, we will confine ourselves, at least for the moment, to the Iliad, his noblest work though neither aristotle nor horace give it the preference as i remember to the odyssey first then as to a subject can anything be more simple and at the same time more noble he is rightly praised by the first of those judicious critics for not choosing the whole war which though he says it hath a complete beginning and end would have been too great for the understanding to comprehend at one view. I have, therefore, often wondered why so correct a writer as Horace should, in his epistle to Lallius, call him the Trojani Belli Scriptorum. Secondly, his action, termed by Aristotle pragmaton synstasis. IS IT POSSIBLE FOR THE MIND OF MAN TO CONCEIVE AN IDEA OF SUCH PERFECT UNITY, AND AT THE SAME TIME SO REPLETE WITH GREATNESS? AND HERE I MUST OBSERVE WHAT I DO NOT REMEMBER TO HAVE SEEN NOTED BY ANY, THE Harmaton, THAT AGREEMENT OF HIS ACTION TO HIS SUBJECT, FOR AS THE SUBJECT IS ANGER, HOW AGREEABLE IS HIS ACTION, WHICH IS WAR. From which every incident arises, and to which every episode immediately relates. Thirdly, his manners, whose Aristotle places second in his description of the several parts of tragedy, and which he says are included in the action. I am at a loss whether I should rather admire the exactness of his judgment in the nice distinction, or the immensity of his imagination in their variety. For, as to the former of these, how accurately is the sedate, injured resentment of Achilles, distinguished from the hot, insulting passion of Agamemnon! How widely doth the brutal courage of Ajax differ from the amiable bravery of Diomedes, and the wisdom of Nestor, which is the result of long reflection and experience from the cunning of Ulysses, the effect of art and subtlety only. If we consider their variety, we may cry out with Aristotle in his twenty-fourth chapter that no part of this divine poem is destitute of manners. Indeed, I might affirm that there is scarce a character in human nature untouched in some part or other, and as there is no passion which he is not able to describe, so there is none in his reader which he cannot raise. If he hath any superior excellence to the rest, I have been inclined to fancy it is in the pathetic. I am sure I never read with dry eyes the two episodes where Andromache is introduced in the former lamenting the danger, and in the latter the death of hector the images are so extremely tender in these that i am convinced the poet had the worthiest and best heart imaginable nor can i help observing how sophocles falls short of the beauties of the original in that imitation of the dissuasive speech of andromache which he hath put into the mouth of tecmesa And yet Sophocles was the greatest genius who ever wrote tragedy, nor have any of his successors in that art, that is to say, neither Euripides nor Seneca, the tragedian, been able to come near him. As to his sentiments and diction, I need say nothing. The former are particularly remarkable for the utmost perfection on that head, namely propriety and, as to the latter, Aristotle, whom doubtless you have read over and over, is very diffuse. I shall mention but one more thing here, which that great critic, in his division of tragedy, calls Opsis, or the scenery, and which is as proper to the epic as to the drama, with this difference, that in the former it falls to the share of the poet and in the latter to that of the painter. But did ever painter imagine a scene like that in the thirteenth and fourteenth Iliads, where the reader sees at one view the prospect of Troy, with the army drawn up before it, the Grecian army, camp and fleet, Jupiter sitting on Mount Ida, with his head wrapped in a cloud, and a thunderbolt in his hand, looking towards Thrace. Neptune, driving through the sea, which divides on each side to permit his passage, and then seating himself on Mount Samos. The heavens opened, and the deities all seated on their thrones. This is sublime, this is poetry. Adams then rapped out a hundred Greek verses, and with such a voice, emphasis and action, that he almost frightened the women, and as for the gentleman, he was so far from entertaining any further suspicion of Adams, that he now doubted whether he had not a bishop in his house. He ran into the most extravagant encomiums on his learning, and the goodness of his heart began to dilate to all the strangers.' He said he had great compassion for the poor young woman, who looked pale and faint with her journey, and in truth he conceived a much higher opinion of her quality than it deserved. He said he was sorry he could not accommodate them all, but if they were contented with his fireside, he would sit up with the men, and the young woman might, if she pleased, partake his wife's bed, which he advised her to, for, that they must walk upwards of a mile to any house of entertainment, and that not very good, neither. Adams, who liked his seat, his ale, his tobacco, and his company, persuaded Fanny to accept this kind proposal, in which solicitation he was seconded by Joseph. Nor was she very difficultly prevailed on, for she had slept little the last night, and not at all the preceding, so that love itself was scarce able to keep her eyes open any longer. The offer, therefore, being kindly accepted, the good woman produced everything eatable in her house on the table, and the guests, being heartily invited, as heartily regaled themselves, especially Parson Adams. As to the other two, They were examples of the truth, of that physical observation, that love, like other sweet things, is no wetter of the stomach. Supper was no sooner ended than Fanny, at her own request, retired, and the good woman bore her company. The man of the house, Adams and Joseph, who would have withdrawn, had not the gentleman insisted on the contrary, drew round the fireside where Adams, to use his own words, replenished his pipe, and the gentleman produced a bottle of excellent beer, being the best liquor in his house. The modest behaviour of Joseph, with the gracefulness of his person, the character which Adams gave of him, and the friendship he seemed to entertain for him, began to work on the gentleman's affections, and raised in him a curiosity, to know the singularity which Adams had mentioned in his history. This curiosity Adams was no sooner informed of than, with Joseph's consent, he agreed to gratify it, and accordingly related all he knew, with as much tenderness as was possible for the character of Lady Booby, and concluded with the long faithful, and mutual passion between him and Fanny, not concealing the meanness of her birth and education. These latter circumstances entirely cured a jealousy which had lately risen in the gentleman's mind, that Fanny was the daughter of some person of fashion, and that Joseph had run away with her, and Adams was concerned in the plot. He was now, enamoured of his guests, drank their healths with great cheerfulness, and returned many thanks to Adams, who had spent much breath, for he was a circumstantial teller of a story. Adams told him it was now in his power to return that favour, for his extraordinary goodness, as well as that fund of literature he was master of. Footnote 1 the author hath by some been represented to have made a blunder here for adams had indeed shown some learning say they perhaps all the author had but the gentleman hath shown none unless his approbation of mr adams be such but surely it would be preposterous in him to call it so I have, however, notwithstanding this criticism, which I am told came from the mouth of a great orator in a public coffee-house, left this blunder as it stood in the first edition. I will not have the vanity to apply to anything in this work the observation which Madame D'Arcier makes in her preface to her Aristophanes. Je tiens pour une maxime constante qu'une beauté médiocre plus généralement qu'une beauté sans défaut, Mr. Congreve hath made such another blunder in his love for love, where Tattle tells Miss Prue quote, she should admire him as much for the beauty he commends in her as if he himself was possessed of it. <clears throat> Adams told him it was now in his power to return that favour for his extraordinary goodness, as well as that fund of literature he was master of, which he did not expect to find under such a roof, had raised in him more curiosity than he had ever known. Therefore, said he, if it be not too troublesome, sir, your history, if you please.' the gentleman answered he could not refuse him what he had so much right to insist on and after some of the common apologies which are the usual preface to a story he thus began End of Book 3, Chapters 1 and 2 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox